And if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, really good to see all of you, especially if you were on the mission trip and you're here. All right, that is good. I want to see you in the foyer here. I'm really pleased to see that you made it. Um, So if you want to find Mark chapter 12, several weeks ago, uh, I was flying from Portland to Spokane where I was going to spend some time with my folks and uh, kind of seated toward the back of the plane and thought I was going to do pretty good there. I I had an open seat. Uh, It didn't look like a super full flight. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm just going to be able to read. And and I pulled out my book that I was reading. I'm reading a book on leadership. And um, right before we take off, though, um, there's about a six foot four guy, late 20s. And guess what? He's sitting right next to me. All right. So here we are. And we're we're all making room and we can we can make this work. And he's like, hey, that book you're reading. He says, I'm I'm reading a book on leadership. I said, really? Yeah. He says, it's called leading change. And I said, really, are you, are you thinking you need to change some things? Like, yeah, there's a lot he wanted to change. In fact, this guy works for a major corporation. Uh, he has a degree from University of Wisconsin, mechanical engineering. He was putting that degree to use. Uh, but you know, things could be so much better where he was working at. And he talks about all the red tape and he, he really had aspirations to do a lot with his life. And he just wasn't seeing how that was going to happen where he was at. So I love talking with people that are thinking about their future and next steps. And so we, we do. I just ask him questions, you know, about what he's good at and what he likes to do. And talking about you really want to function in your sweet spot, okay? You know, the sweet spot in a tennis racket is where you get the maximum recoil on the ball. You want to look at where your desires, your strengths, your education, your experiences, uh, your opportunities match an opportunity to earn an income, Boy, if you can identify that, boy, that would really be a sweet spot. And he was, he was just all ears and, and wanting to engage and talk and, and loved answering these questions. So we're kind of talking through this. And, you know, we we're talking about the importance of your personal life and your relationships and your work life. But I said, really, at the heart of it, though, is your spiritual life. And I, I asked him, do you believe in God? And he, and he looked at me and he's like, well, uh, yeah. I said, really? Well, who is God? He's like, well, God is kind of like, and he talks about these scientific um, observations, scientific principles that he could identify and he was aware of. When he saw that in action, that was God. God was an impersonal force. Now, he did want me to know that his grandfather had been a very influential pastor in the Midwest, okay? And so, uh, but he was far, far from that. And so, as we're sitting there and, and talking, I said, well, really, your relationship with God and your purpose in life, right, that's really at the heart of the matter. And so as we were talking, he really wanted to know, well, then why, why do you believe in God and what do you really think the purpose of life is? And that really is one of the most important questions of life. What is the purpose of life? And it just so happens to be one of the questions that is presented to Jesus shortly before he goes to the cross. You know, every single one of us, whether you're here in person or you're watching online, you've got to be able to answer that question, why are you here? What is indeed the purpose of life? And that's what we find being asked in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Just to kind of give you perspective, context of where we're at, Remember, we've been going through the gospel of Mark. Jesus presents himself as indeed uh, fully God, truly man. He has powers to do miracles. He has wisdom, just unprecedented. 
And when we come to this final week, this Passover week, you've got about a couple million people that are now filling Jerusalem. Jesus is the talk of the town. Everybody wants to know who he is, what he's like. He is teaching on the temple. What happened? He made on Monday, he made a messianic presentation. He rode on the foal of a colt, colt, uh, a foal of a donkey, which was indeed a sign that this was a promised king. In fact, David and his sons rode on donkeys. People were calling out Hosanna, son of David. He wasn't saying, wait, 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 no, you're making a mistake. He's receiving all of this. On Tuesday, he completely clears out all the money changers and the merchants on the temple, saying, my house is to be a house of prayer. And then on Wednesday, he's teaching. And he is being confronted by the religious establishment, the Jewish leaders, and they have got their best questions. They want to nail him, trick him, trap him. And so far, they have been completely unsuccessful. And that's where we find verse 28, the final question. Look at verse 28. Now, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, recognizing that he had answered them well, and asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, this scribe, he was watching all of this. The scribes were those that were the lawyers among the Jews. They were the ones that most and best understood the scriptures. In fact, they had given their lives to the study and the understanding of scripture. And he's watching this. And he saw, isn't that interesting? He saw that Jesus had answered them well. Now, he is about to ask them a question. What is the foremost commandment of all? Now, one of the things that rabbis, Jewish leaders, Jewish teachers, the scribes, one of the things they tried to do was reduce all of the law, all of the Old Testament, in one single sentence, an axiom that would capture the essence of their faith. They believed if they could just do that, like they would just be able to own it, it would be like at the forefront of everything they believed. And so they tried. And there were a lot of efforts, and I've I've read some of them, and, and frankly, it's not super impressive. But yet they still gave themselves to it. So this question was not like out of the blue. This was a question that they had been wrestling with for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they want to ask, and he asked this scribe, what is the commandment that is foremost of all? Now, to show you just how in-depth the Jewish scribes had dived into the scripture, they had actually ascertained that there were 613 commandments given in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they had divided them up into the negative and the positive. They believed that there were 613 because that was the number of the letters in the Ten Commandments, okay? So we're talking, man, these guys are they're thinking about it at a pretty deep level. They had ascertained that there were 248 affirmative commands, 365 negatives. In fact, they even assigned weights to them, although there was a lot of debate as to which ones were weightier than others. And really, all of the laws, you know, don't do this, do this, wear this, burn this, show up here at this time, why, oftentimes, they could just slip into these patterns of religion. It would just kind of almost wear them out. And so the scribe asked the question, what is the foremost commandment of the law? And notice what Jesus says, verse 29. Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God is one Lord. 
This one statement was at the heart of the one true faith. This was the creed of Israel. It is from Deuteronomy 6.4. It is called the Shema, which means hear. And that's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Shema, the Lord our God is one. Okay? So the Shema was so critically important that every single synagogue worship service began with this, this statement right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So important was Deuteronomy 6.4 that they actually had this written on a script in what is called a phylactery. Now, phylactery are two twin boxes tied together with leather. And inside those boxes, guess which one of the verses was? Deuteronomy 6.4. At the home of, of those who are devout Jewish believers is called a mezuzah. And inside this little, little like scroll, guess what? Verses found. The Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. These were some of the most important words of the Old Testament. This was the creed of Israel. And so Jesus is asked, what is the foremost commandment? He tells them something that they said and heard every day. In morning prayers, they would, they would say this. Before every worship service, even as they walk in their house, they would be reminded of this. This statement here, that the Lord... Our God, hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. But before Jesus gives any obligation, he gives an explanation. Before God calls us to do something or to respond, he tells us who he is. And notice, notice this. Maybe you just kind of breeze right past this like, okay, there it is. Uh, he says, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But this, our God, affirmed God's love. It reminded them that God had established a covenant with them. He was a God of love. He loved his people. This is our God. This is not an impersonal God. This is not a God that we don't know. This is our God. And it spoke, speaks not only of the fact that God is a God of love, it speaks of God's unity, that our Lord is... One. God is one Lord. Now, Deuteronomy 6.4, when it, it actually uses the word one, it's the Hebrew word echad, okay? That's your Hebrew word for the day. It clears your throat, and it actually means a compound oneness. Not just a plurality of, of uh, regal plurality, but speaks of a compound oneness. You know, like, what does that mean? So, for instance, like Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says this, that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become echad, one. It's a compound oneness. It's used of a cluster of grapes. And do you remember how God revealed himself? In Genesis chapter 1, verse, like verse 26, he says, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. So God is introducing himself as plurality. In fact, we realize that he is three, and yet he is absolutely unified. He is one. He is three in one. And so every single day, the Jewish people would be saying this. Were they reminded of God's love? And they'd be reminded that he is absolutely one. 
but there's a compoundness to this oneness. And then Jesus went on to say, verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Here he's quoting from Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 30, verse 6. And it tells us that the primary affection that people are to have toward God is love. A love that's how we relate with God. And notice it is all of us, every aspect of our being. He goes from our heart, which speaks of our affections, our soul, which speaks of our spirit, our mind, which speaks of our intellect, and our strength, which speaks of like bodily energy, that we are fully functional, that everything about us is to be engaged in loving God. And you might be like, okay, I get it, um, with all of my heart, my affections. And so often we think like, well, worship, yeah, I just need to get in some sort of like emotional state where I'm feeling pretty good, got this little emotional high. My affections are for God, or at least I'm feeling pretty good about it right now. But it's all of your affections, your emotion, your soul, your spirit, and your mind. You don't check your mind out at the door and like, well, I'm going to go worship God. No, this is a call to engage fully all of your mental faculties in the exaltation of God, to use everything that God has given you intellectually to know him, to understand him, to see his ways working in the world, to engage fully. And the mind is so critically important because it's with the mind that we know the truth of God. Remember this, true love is never separated from truth. True love is never separated from truth. We're to love God with our mind. Like what Jesus said, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You engage your mind. What does it look like to keep the commandments of God? Well, the person that loves God is very interested in the answer of that question. Or like he said in verse 21, chapter 14 of John. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And so with everything in our being, we are to love God. And did you notice the high honor that Jesus gives the scripture? When asked, what is the foremost commandment of all? What is the purpose of life? He doesn't say, well, you know, this scribe over here says this, or this rabbi I really think is on to something. He answers directly from the scripture. The whole basis for our faith is the Bible. The most important question that we can ever ask when it comes to the basis of our faith is Romans chapter 4, verse 3a. What does the scripture say? It's frankly not super important what this gal or this guy thinks. What this, this, uh, this person here has written this, this is really what God's all about. It's not important what I have to say. We know what's really important? What God has said. For what does the scripture say? And what does Jesus point to? The purpose of life. The foremost commandment? Why, it's directly in the word. And Jesus goes on. He actually goes and gives even beyond what is asked. He says, verse 31, and the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
there is no other commandment greater than these. And here he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He says, not only do you have a love for God that actually calls for the entirety of your being, that love gets translated to a love for people. These are like the teeth in the gears that drive the people of Israel forward into the promises of God. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others and moving forward. Now, Jesus is presenting this, and this is not a mandate for self-love. Like some people are like, oh, yeah, there it is right there. Great, I knew there had to be a verse on that. I'll just focus on this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we are so good at just focusing on the love of self. This isn't a mandate for self-love. Rather, this is how we measure our love for others. What would we wish for ourselves? So it's actually pretty easy, according to what Jesus had to say. If you want to know, like, well, how do I, how do I love people well? Well, what is it that you would receive as acceptance, help, care, concern, encouragement, love? And you got that in mind? Then in God's strength, do that. Love your neighbor as you would find love yourself. And that's what he's talking about. This requires us to break out of the mold of self-centeredness. So much of even modern-day Christianity is all about about you and how you can have a better life and how others can meet your needs. And, it, and we have this total orientation that it's all about you. When I, I got news for you, it's not about you. It's not about your career. It's not about your money. It's not about your entertainment, your hobbies. It's about the love of God and seeing that love for God being translated for a love for others. You see, the purpose of life is loving God that leads to loving people. And what Jesus said what, here, no one had ever put this together. All of their attempts were paled in comparison to absolute intellectual genius, deity, put on display. And to show you how profound this is, when Jesus put these statements together, he actually encompassed the entire Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with what? Our vertical relationship with God. The final six deal with how we care for others, the horizontal level. And Jesus put it all together right here in this package. Now, this idea of affection for God, guess what it leads to? Expression. Affection for God leads to expression. Affection for people will lead to expression. I mean, you'll see that, right? If you love your spouse, right, it, it leads to expressions. Your kids, your grandkids, people in your church, in your community. Love, a love from the heart, leads to an expression in your life. And notice this is how this is so emphasized in the New Testament. I'll give you an example. When John is writing 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, listen to what he said. We love because he first loved us, okay? Until you really are grasping God's love for you, chances are you're not really expressing a lot of love to others. But we love because he first loved us. 
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That's what Jesus is driving at. You want to know the purpose of life? It's loving God that leads to a love for others. You got to think for the thousands that were gathered and watching this interchange. It was absolutely silent when Jesus made these statements. And then verse 32, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So here he substitutes pronouns instead of using God's name because the Jewish people never wanted to say God's personal name, Yahweh, because they ran a risk of perhaps saying it in vain. But furthermore, uh, notice that he kind of like changes things up just a little bit and doesn't even include soul. But he is encompassing the fact that, yes, you're talking about the entirety of one's being, to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And perhaps he's even looking at sacrifices taking place in the temple where they're burning sacrifices. And he sees the smoke rising. And he's coming to the realization that religious ritual and routine, although it may have its place, it pales in comparison to the reality of truly loving and knowing God. To have a heart of love is better than having habits of religion. And this guy gets it. And do you see what he said? He's, he, he said to Jesus, verse 32, write, teacher, you have truly stated. This is the only time that anyone in Jewish leadership ever told Jesus, that's right, you're correct. Jesus was always correct, always right, but instead of saying, you know what? We need to think this over again. I think we've come to the wrong conclusion. No, no. They're like, no, we don't like what you have to say. We're going to get rid of you. But this scribe said, you know what, Jesus? In front of everybody, in front of his peers, who had probably sent him to go and trip Jesus up in his trap, you're right. You're right. And look what Jesus had to say, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, mm, isn't that good? Answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Wow. Jesus gives this man a compliment and a challenge. He tells him, you have answered well. He, it's commented that he saw that he answered intelligently. You know, so much of thinking today is about as superficial as a birdbath, right? We don't even slow down. I want you to know that if you're going to engage the living God, you've got to think deeply, and this man is. Jesus compliments him. 
You've answered well. But he also challenges him. Do you see what he said? He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. In fact, you're close. You understand the commandments. You know the foremost commandment. You know the, how it's tied in, loving God and loving people. You're close, but you are not in yet. You haven't come to a place where your soul is resting and trusting completely in the one who can provide you salvation. You're close, but you are not in. You see, the purpose of life is loving God that leads to loving others. That's the ultimate purpose of life. And this man, he's getting it. He's understanding it. And when we think about this, this idea of of loving God, we want to do so with the fullness of our being. I encourage you, grow in your depth of loving God with your mind, with your emotions, with everything about you. And that, when that really happens, that equates to being expressed to loving people. And just on loving people, let me give you a few things that will be really helpful. Do not treat people as objects or as obstacles in your way, but rather for who they really are. People are made in the image of God. Don't treat them as objects for your fantasy or objects to kind of get things done for you or obstacles. These, these people are in my way. And furthermore, life is all about me and ugh, you're just kind of a drag on what I'm trying to do. No, rather see them as those who have made in God's image. And when you do, you will find that they are valuable, valuable in God's sight. They become valuable in your sight. And let me just give you one statement that'll be really helpful. Just ask this, Lord, how can I show that I care? When it comes to people, try this this week. Start with the folks in your own home. Lord, how can I show that I care? Jesus is giving us the answer to one of the most important questions of life, and that is, what is the purpose of life? But notice, they're done. Verse 34, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. They don't have any more questions. Jesus has answered every single one. And so now it's his turn, his turn to ask a question. And the question that Jesus presents is also one of the most important questions you could ever answer in life. And that is, who really is the person of Christ? Who really is the Messiah. Now, just to give you a little background on Jewish thinking, the Jewish people were most definitely waiting for a Messiah, okay? In Greek, Christ or Christos. They were waiting for a Messiah, and this is what they knew about the Messiah. They knew he would be human. They knew he was going to come from the lineage of David. Uh, They expected that this Messiah was going to be a conqueror, like David, but even greater. He would restore Israel to the greatest nation on the earth. All of Israel's enemies would be vanquished. This one would be influential, highly powerful. But one of the things that they did not think about Messiah is that he would be God. They were believing that there would be a Messiah that would come that would be the savior of the nation. But they never really considered that the Messiah would be their 
personal, individual Savior. You see, if you and I are really going to love God with all of our being, and we're going to love others as ourselves, we're going to need one who can fill us, forgive us, fuel us to love, and give us a pattern to follow. We're going to need God to enter into humanity, to not only address our sin, but to give us forgiveness, fill us with life, and give us a pattern to follow. The most important question that you could ever really wrestle with is who really is the person of Christ? And that's exactly what Jesus drives at. Look at verse 35. Their silence, so Jesus, he began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, now they knew, yep, he's going to come from the lineage of David. And now he's going to quote to them Psalm 110, verse 1. They recognized this as a messianic psalm, a psalm that pointed to the Messiah, gave them understanding of who he would be like. Well, look what he says, verse 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit. Before we get to Psalm 110, you might want to underline verse 36. This is how scripture is brought to us. David, the human author, moved by the Holy Spirit. Scripture isn't the religious thoughts of people of the day. It's not for you to pick and choose, well, I like this, but I don't really like that, or I'm going to cut this out, or I'm just going to call that some sort of cultural thing for the past. It is God using men moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. And then he gives them Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now, they all understood that this Messiah is going to come from the line of David. And I'll give you the scriptures that they would cite. You're familiar with them. Like, for instance, 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14, Isaiah 11, 1, Jeremiah 23, 5. All of this says that Messiah is going to come from the line of David. In fact, they even knew where the Messiah was going to be born. They knew that Messiah was going to be born in a little sheep village, a little town of, I know it's July, but what? Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Messiah's going to come from this little sheep village, Bethlehem. Hmm. They believed that he would be fully human. But what they didn't understand is that at the same time, he's absolutely God. And so that's why Jesus is asking this question. The Lord, verse 36, said to my Lord, the first Lord there is Yahweh, okay, in Psalm 110. It's God's personal covenant name, I am who I am, the self-existent one, okay? So it's the Father. I am, Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord. That second Lord in uh, Psalm 110 is Adonai, okay? And what David is saying, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, this Messiah, they would recognize this as the Messiah, and so David is speaking to the one who is going to be his son, 
but at the same time is Lord. And furthermore, his deity is put on display by saying, the Lord said to my Lord, so Yahweh, the Father, said to my Lord, Messiah, sit at my right hand. In royalty, the preeminent position is the right hand. And when Jesus is saying this, he is saying this one is sitting in the position of divine power. It's a claim claim to deity. And furthermore, he says, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. This has the idea of conquering all sin and all evil. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the paintings and pictures of these ancient battles and then these kings. And what they do is they have all these people that are down on the ground. Sometimes they have like hooks going through their nose or their mouth. And the king has his feet on their neck. And it's a symbol of complete domination, of total victory. And what is being said in this messianic psalm is that this Messiah, David's son, who is also God, he says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. He's the absolute conqueror of all sin, of all evil. And every one of God's enemies will one day be under the feet, under the domination of this one that David calls his Lord. The only explanation that is viable is this. The same one that David is going to have a future son, this son is not truly, just truly human. He is also fully God. And they had always missed that. And yet, Jesus says, you know, I just have a question for you. How is that possible? Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And they're all like, oh my. How how did we never see this? But as they're thinking, do you remember what took place just two days ago? When David... When, when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, the city of David, he rode in on the foal of a donkey. Do you know what they were calling out? Hosanna, son of David. They're putting palm branches in their garments in front of him. Do you know David and his sons rode on donkeys? Jesus didn't say, whoa, whoa, wait, we got it wrong. No, 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 not once. This was, he was receiving his title from the people who were recognizing And when Jesus gives this quote and he asks them this question, what he's really saying is, do you know who I am? You see, the son of David, he's not just truly man. He's fully God. And he's standing there in their midst and looking at them. All of them have an opportunity to respond to who he truly is. But it's really interesting. Notice how they respond. And the large crowd, they just enjoyed listening to him. And that's really the problem. Not in one instance do we have any of them falling down before him and saying, I see who you are. Some hated him. Others were like, wow, this guy's really smart. Never seen anything like this before but not a one bowed down and worshipped him. 
Not a one, said God. O son of David, save me, wretched man that I am. Not one. You see, one of the most important questions of life is, who really is the person of Christ? That is a question that you must fundamentally answer and know the true answer to. Because a lot is riding on that, especially if you identify yourself as a Christian. There's a quote given to us by Brennan Manning. I'd like to read this to you. It's startling, so get ready. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. If Jesus really is the Son of God, truly man, fully God, then that changes the entire orientation of our lives. He's at the center Life isn't about you, it's about him. And how you pursue life and go through it, it's all about Christ at the center because he is the living God. And what we really believe about Jesus, it's not found in your words. I mean, anybody can get live service and just kind of say the right things. It's not found in your words, it's found in your way of life. You see, this crowd, they enjoyed listening to him. But no one came to a point of really embracing him for who he really is. It's kind of like honey. I can tell you about honey. And I, I, I really like honey. And I like to taste it, you know. I put it on bread, a little bit of butter, some rolls. It's going to be hard to beat if they're fresh out of the oven. You got some really good honey with that. And then when you taste honey, it just like explodes in your mouth. But I tell you about Jesus You know, I can tell you the facts. In fact, you could probably tell lots of people facts about Jesus. Um, What do I know about Jesus? Well, uh, he's eternal. Uh, He came to the earth, Christmas, incarnation. He lived a perfect life. He did miracles. He was super wise. Uh, He was killed on a cross. He died for sins. He was buried in a grave. And he rose again on the third day. I got it. I I got all the answers. I know. Indeed, you do know the answers. But have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Friends, you can be close to the kingdom of God, right? Verse 34, you can know the answers, you can know the truth, you can even see who Jesus is. But until you come to a place where you are trusting in him, embracing him, loving him from the heart, friends, you are close to the kingdom, but you are not in. And I want you to know, I do not want anyone just close to the kingdom. I don't want you like, man, Grant, thanks so much. You've been really helpful to me. I know a lot about God and about the Bible. And I'm close. I want you in. I want you trusting in Christ, turning from sin and trusting in him. You see, knowing the person of Christ is how we fulfill the purpose of life. And the purpose of life is just simply this. It's loving God that leads to loving others. Well, remember Andy on the plane? We were having such a good conversation. Um, By the fact that I showed such an interest and wanting to be helpful to him, this young guy in his late 20s, man, he was just eating it up. 
And he wanted to know, like, well, why do you believe in God? You know, and so I, I told him, and I'll just give you the brief on it. I said, well, first of all, creation, okay? God is a creator, and you can see that at a macro level and a micro level. We talked about that. Furthermore, you can know that there is a God because of conscience, okay? That you know that there is a right and wrong. In fact, every single person knows there's a right and wrong. And I spoke of everyone on the plane, and, and people would know things that are right and wrong. That's given to us by God. That tells us that God is a God of morality. He establishes right and wrong. Furthermore, God is personal. He's not an impersonal force. He has communicated to us. He has given us the scriptures so that we will actually know him, that we can relate to him in a personal way. But at the heart of all of this is Christ, the one who lived a perfect life and died as the perfect sacrifice of sins and rose again so that you and I can truly have and live out the true purpose of life, and that is to know him, to love him, and to love others. And as we kind of talk through this and I gave him my card and said, hey, I've really enjoyed talking with you. If you want to talk anymore, you know how to get a hold of me. And as we're kind of buckled up and we're getting ready to land, he kind of turns to me and he said this, it's no coincidence that we're talking today. You know, I was thinking about the fact that his grandparents probably were praying for a grandson like this. And guess who he's going to go see? His family. And he told me, it's no coincidence that we're talking today. And I want you to know that it's no coincidence that you're here today and we're hearing from God's word on two of the most important questions of life. And knowing the person of Christ is how we fulfill the purpose of life. I don't want you to be close. I want you in. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. Only you, through the power of scriptures, through the power of you working in history, could orchestrate that these two events and interchanges would be directly tied where we can see that knowing the person of Christ is how we fulfill the purpose of life. For someone who is here today who has never truly trusted in Jesus, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I... (laughs) 